On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, yes. Uh, we're back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the man with the task cam. That's me, Peter Agassin. Welcome to my weekly podcast, The House List. You're on The House List. I just marked your name off. Yes, the show is free, but I still put your name on the list. And as you can see, I marked it off. So now you're officially up in there. And uh, as always, I appreciate you coming through and checking these out. It's amazing. I'm going to keep doing this every week. I promise. I appreciate you. And today's episode is no exception. It's a really cool one. If you have any connection, relationship, uh, if you ever went to shows, parties, and hung out in this space the show space music venue death by audio then you'll definitely appreciate this episode i sat down with the director and producer of goodnight brooklyn matt conboy and amanda schultz talking about the making of this great documentary about the last days of death by audio that's not their tagline. I just figured that's that's basically what it is. So Death by Audio was an incredible music venue, a DIY show space uh, that basically ran from 2007 to 2014 in Brooklyn, New York, in Williamsburg, on South 2nd between Wythe and Kent. I'm just going off the top of my head, y'all. I do have... I, I, I'm trying not to write down many notes, but the thing is, in particular to death by audio i had a long-standing and a great affinity for that room um and eden wilbur the show promoter the booker and also the sound guy front of house a jack of all trades for for the um much of the lifespan of that venue he booked all the shows and as some of you may or may not know um i work as a booking agent i worked at two other agencies before I branched out on my own, uh, one was called Panache Booking. We had Michelle Cable uh, on a two-part episode uh, at the top of the year, and another was Inland Empire. And during my tenure at both of those places, I booked a lot of shows as an agent and as a promoter, if you will, at Death by Audio. 
Um, uh, as I was watching the movie, and I watched it twice. It's called Goodnight Brooklyn. It's awesome. It's on um, Vimeo and iTunes and goodnightbrooklyn.com. I said that slowly, so hopefully you could write that down. Uh, definitely go to goodnightbrooklyn.com. But as a booking agent, I think I had maybe 20 different artists, unique acts, bands, solo artists, mostly rock bands, though, that I booked um, at Death Audio, either many, many times or a couple of times here and there. Uh, for a while, I did a lot of shows with the Nashville Infinity Cat Records bands, namely Jeff the Brotherhood, Natural Child, and Heavy Cream, who played a big part in Death by Audio. Jeff the Brotherhood in particular, who did uh, sh many shows there before I worked with them and after. Uh, I also did Ardo Lindsay, Sun Ra, Sin Kane, Habibi, Pterodactyl, Yellow Dogs, Crocodiles, a gang of other stuff. My last show there was Matthew David. So the club closed in 2014, in November. And now the film follows the the last month, essentially, of Death by Audio being in existence after they sort of were edged out, learned that their lease was up, and, and nudged out, um, only to be replaced, ironically, by the Vice Media Corporation, many of which I'm sure out there are very familiar with who that is. Um, so the film follows that storyline from Death by Audio's inception, which really, for those that might not know, uh, really started as a guitar pedal, effects pedal workshop in this derelict warehouse, which would then be built out into the show space and like a living space. So a lot of the people that work there live there. And I partied there um, both uh, before, during and after shows. So... Um, yeah, I just have a great affinity for it. The movie really struck me. There's a lot of people I know very well that were uh, played a part in making it, that played shows there. There's some amazing bands that played there over the years, and a lot of groups that got uh, basically like had their start there or had many very important shows there that went on to you know, do big stuff like Future Islands, of course, is uh, they played many, many shows there. Dan Deacon, Lightning Bolt, whom we opened this episode with um, because the great Brooklyn imprint record label, Famous Class Records, uh, shouts to Cyrus who let me um, play some of that song in the opening. They uh, did a compilation in 2016 a three vinyl set called Start Your Own Fucking Show Space. So there's a whole like world that was involved with Death by Audio. Um, and you'll see um, a good chunk of that in the film. So definitely check this film out. And right now, uh, why don't we get into my conversation with Matt and Amanda, the filmmakers of... Good Night Brooklyn, the story about death by audio. Check it out. Enjoy this conversation. Thank you. But I started going back in old emails and I was talking to Eden and like looking. 
now I have no idea how many shows I did at Death by Audio, but I did a lot. And I think in total, I had maybe 20 different bands over the years that I booked in the room. So there's a lot of people and, and stuff that I was uh, very familiar with. So I wanted to see just really for you guys, like how the two of you even be- began this process. And maybe Amanda, when you stepped into uh, knowing that you, that Matt, you had lived there and obviously were there every night for the most part. So it's not like you were just uh, uh, in, a t- in a like a typical director sort of mode where you where you saw something as an outsider that intrigued you and you stepped in to make a film about it. you had already been living in it for a long time so maybe just to start to just for context we can kind of figure out where how you guys connected and and at what point you really started to think about making this um yeah yeah so like yeah like you said it's a this is a fairly like autobiographical film um and amanda and i had worked on this other kind of short documentary project uh, right before this one called Checking In at 20, which is just kind of this like 20-minute biography film about uh, Brian Chippendale and Greg Sonia, and Amanda produced that. Uh, And that's um, Lightning Bolt, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's Deerhoof and Lightning Bolt, and it's kind of like the story of uh, like these two drummers and like weird bands who've been, you know, able to kind of make it work for 20 years which is pretty awesome yeah um so that and that was that was the first thing we had really worked on together and then uh and it was the same kind of role where you were the director and you're the producer yeah just uh he had spent uh before we had actually ever met each other he had spent probably about a year kind of touring with these bands and just collecting footage and didn't quite know what to do with it. And mm. with a little bit of my background, I actually come from like an ad agency background and producing websites and commercials and things like that. Um, I kind of just talked to him about what he sort of wanted and then lined up some, like an editor and sort of figured out the right way to oh, know, interesting. working with him to tell that story. And then, yeah, once um, some of the stuff was going down with where he was living, yeah. yeah, I mean, we just kind of were meeting up and talking about future projects, and I just was kind of telling Amanda, like, hey, I just found out that actually I'm going to have to move out and we're going to have to close, probably like close this venue, and it's all because of this company, Vice. You know, I, I mean, I think, like, immediately you almost, like, interrupted me, and we're just like, okay, well, we need to get, like, get a crew together, and we're going to start filming this. At what point in time was that in 2014 still? Yeah, yeah, that was probably, I mean, yeah, obviously probably... you knew, you already knew by, like, near the end of 2014. Yeah, yeah, I, I want to say it was, like, around June. June or July. Yeah, that, that, that we, you know, it took a couple of months, like, at first our landlords were just like, hey, we don't think we're going to renew your lease, and then... You know, there was, like, more discussions, and then it was kind of, like, revealed to me that, like, oh, yeah, Vice is the one who's going to be moving in and stuff. And, like, a decision had already been made. Like, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so th- I think that was kind of and, – and I also could tell, you know, that, that like, it was going to be probably a crazy time and that there was a, certainly the possibility that we were going to have some kind of conflict with them. Yeah. I think <clears> – <throat> him describing just the process of why they were cutting the lease and holding back on the fact that maybe Vice was involved in it. Uh-huh. Uh, I think you described it perfectly where I was like, I smelled blood in the water. <laughs> like, right. This, you know, if, if it's already being set up this early on the process of trying to get you guys out, that, that just didn't, that didn't seem right that this entire experience was going to be positive. And, 
um, I think we just saw, sort of saw something there um, yeah. to figure out. Do you know at what point did the other rooms around the corner uh, vacate? Because it was all like one after another after another, right? Do you yeah. remember that kind of timeline? Yeah, so so our building, it was like this big uh, former warehouse. It was like the warehouse for the Domino Sugar Factory. And there were... You know, I don't know, around 20 or so different units in this whole building, which is like half a city block. So which which basically... Uh, it, it runs from, like, between South 1st and South 2nd Street, between Wythe and Kent. It's basically just half of that block is just one enormous building. Uh, and so I definitely noticed that, like, some of the tenants in, like, some of the other parts of the buildings uh, were leaving and no- nothing was coming in. But that wasn't necessarily abnormal. Um uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think we were, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember the, the order of things. I think 285 Kent, uh, which had been there for a couple of years, they closed and that stayed open. And then I think we were, we were the next venue in the, in the building to close. And then Glasslands closed uh, a month after us. Right. Cause they were, if I even remember too, I didn't even really research that at all, but they were like New Year's Eve was like their last yeah, show. Yeah, I think so. Like yeah. So... Do you remember that movie theater that was like on the corner? Oh yeah, Indie there? Screen. Yeah, yeah. I actually have never been in there. I, I never went in there either. But <laughs> I just remember that now because I'm visualizing that block too. And you know, it, it's. I also had a, kind of a weird um, perspective on that those last couple of months too because I had gone through this big like health scare thing and I was recovering in my friend's apartment on South First between Wythe and Kent uh, from September to December 2014. So I was like, uh, um, not even really, I was just really kind of learning to walk again and stuff like that. So I remember seeing you guys a couple of times and I even had, I think my last show at Death by Audio was, it was Matthew David was this guy from LA producer, um, sort of new age ambient beat producer dude. That was in late October of 2014 or something. So what was that final, cause this is the culmination in the film. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but that last chunk of time was two it was two weeks or a week or uh before the club closed you had a run up of big shows yeah days, yeah we kind of we we kind of made our big announcement and then I, I don't i think maybe at the end of september um but you know i think things really kicked off uh with we had this art show called death by art where we right. kind of opened up the the space um you know and that was probably the last two or three weeks uh and you know and but then i mean even before then we started doing kind of crazy halloween shows and stuff um so i don't know exactly where you'd want to say the end started but you know somewhere well i mean even if you are acknowledging by starting to film it you can tell that like something needs to start getting documented and that was like I, i was trying to figure out too because there is and i want to talk about this too there's a lot of like archival footage and uh some state taken from pr- other like news video and stuff like that so when did you start like at, at what point did you actively have like cameramen and stuff like that filming like i think it was we i think we gave ourselves either six weeks or eight weeks um and once i think matt and eden had bands lining up to start playing all those shows uh we had a just an amazing group of volunteers who, you know, would 
come over and help film everything. I mean, we probably had six or seven guys on like a rotating schedule and they would come over at like 10 p.m. and we would film all the way until 2 a.m. almost every night. We had just hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage that we had to go through. Um, And I think, you know, a combination of that, they would help kind of manage the the evening shows. And then we had just uh, camera equipment around for like the day-to-day stuff that Matt was able to capture when there were some, some random conflicts. And then for the archival footage, I think, again, it was just a lot of Matt's uh, relationships and people that, you know, once they kind of found out what was happening, just wanted to step in and help out and were just so cool about it. Right. Yeah. I saw that Caroline is like in the credits as the archivist. So it was like, did you, how did that, um, so that's like a mutual friend of ours too. Of course, Caroline Pertamian, awesome, awesome person. Yeah, she she helped us kind of get stuff organized when we were first starting to get the whole thing, you know, because making a documentary film is so much about just organizing everything you have to, to so that you can try and build something out of it. Right. Um, so how do you even approach that in the moment, knowing that like you obviously know a ton of people, but at, like how do you identify who has footage and where do you even start at that point? Um, yeah, well, I, cause I, so I, in terms of the archival footage, it, it primarily comes from two sources. There's uh, John and Takako Timkew who have made another film that's about, kind of about the very beginning of, of Death by Audio. Uh, and, you know, I just, just from, li- you know, living there and being there, I just remembered them having cameras and being around and stuff. So where were they from? Uh, they're, I, I believe they are friends with their original, like association was, I think they're like buddies with Oliver and Greg Wilson. I want to say, I don't actually technically know how they met. I know they used to run a awesome art gallery around the corner. So they're New York guys. Oh, they're, yeah, they're, they're here. Yeah. They, 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 they've been in New York a long time. Uh, so yeah. And they just were, I think they were interested in what was happening. And so they were filming a bunch of stuff in 2007 and 2008 uh, and I don't, I, you know, I think they were still trying to decide what they wanted to do with the footage. And I just remembered like, oh, yeah, these people were here. Maybe I could ask them. And then another, the other source is this guy, Cliff Taylor, who's uh, based out of, I think, Phoenix um, or no, Tucson. He's based out of Tucson. And he made a film uh, called Fuzz, the sound that changed the world. That's just all about like effects pedals. And he, I remember him coming and filming as well during a re- that same kind of early 2007, 2008 period. Well, obviously that, that too is like really when it's it's almost equal parts or more so the, the pedal-like business too, right? So. Yeah. Or is, it, is, of... that, is that accurate? No, in that like you, that Death by Audio as, uh, as, as, you know, engineers of guitar pedals was its own uh thing that had you know not as much to do with the shows itself i mean they they kind of existed separately at at one stage right yeah well i mean that i I was kind of if you want to say maybe like the bridge between them because you know the venue was started by jason amos and myself and uh he and i met building pedals and you know i think it was my kind of idea to like well let's have this venue and we'll call it death by audio and that'll help more people find out about the pedal company and this cool thing that's this community of people and stuff and then uh, you know, eventually Jason moved away and Eden kind of took over a lot of responsibilities for running the place. And so, you know, I kind of continued to be like, I'm still working at the pedal company. I'm still helping to run the venue and, you know, kind of like uh, a rising tide lifts all boats kind of kind of right. vibe. Um, yeah. So when like even telling the story, like just going back to how you started piecing that together, is it something where could you like storyboard it out or did you have like a... a is it just a matter of going through like tons of footage or? Yeah, I think so. Uh, 
I remember Matt calling me at like 2 a.m. freaking out because they had spent all day uh, with our editor. Andrew Ratzlaff, who's the best editor in the world. Yeah, he's Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of footage, too. So, yeah, the editing is is really on point. Yeah, and they're like, we've spent all day trying to start this story, and we only have two minutes worth of something that we're comfortable with. Oh, wow. (laughs) And and I was like, it's it's okay. And I'm like, "Ah, it's 2 a.m. I'm like, skip to the second act. Skip to, like, don't worry about how, how you intro it. Get to, like, the meat of it, and then that will inevitably, you know, flesh itself out. Yeah, um, yeah. But it was really hard because I don't think we really, we knew we needed to tell an important story, but we never knew what we were exactly what we were going to get while we were filming everything. And, it, you know, Andrew did an incredible job actually going through all the footage and logging all these things. And we had, you know, we sent the footage off to like Romania, I think, to get transcribed so that we could have like uh, this <laughs> yeah, so we could... 500 page binder of like I, things that happened and then like trying to just figure out what was the most important so it was actually transcribed in text that you could you could read it like that? Yeah, exactly. And then separate from wow. that, Andrew, like Amanda was saying, watched through the entire, f- all of the probably 150 hours of footage and took meticulous notes and even basically just did his own shorthand transcription of every interview. Uh, and, wow. and so, and then made these binders so... You know, he and I could kind of like I'd kind of be thumbing through and like, okay, well, we need somebody who's talking about this topic, and then I'm trying to find that and like, oh, great, Dan Deacon has this section where he's talking about that. Great, pull that. Here's the time code, and you know, eventually, what kind of you know what kind of worked for for me, and I think for the for the two of us working together, is we kind of did like the typical thing where we got like a big chalkboard, and I just started kind of trying to create a story outline because I'm I'm much more comfortable thinking like that. I have like a pretty strong background in like writing and story and stuff so if if i i kind of was like okay let's just break this into acts and let's say like what needs to happen i know what needs to happen we need to introduce you know the conflict in the story here this is the point where this this is where things are rising okay great you know and yeah the narrative is pretty clear in that style of storytelling i think yeah yeah, thanks Uh, yeah and so i just i think that that was maybe when it like flipped over to being like okay now we just need to like fill this gap or now we need to build we've got this little piece we've got this little piece let's you know put them together this way right and how have you been going to have you lived in new york for a while amanda um i've lived here for a little over seven years so um, you had been you'd been obviously been to the club too mm-hmm. like yeah yeah um i wasn't like a lifelong like a hardcore member right, that's all right. <laughs> but yeah no i definitely gone there um, and was pretty familiar with the space and just even through this process was getting, um, you know, made friends and developed really great relationships with a lot of people that worked there and, and lived there and just saw um, kind of just the the beauty of, of those cultural spaces that are yeah. so necessary in, that, in those neighborhoods. And, you know, when I first moved here, I definitely moved here in a time that everything was you know, it's been getting more expensive. And, and I think I came after that wave of, you know, giant gentrification that I think has totally, you know, overtaken Brooklyn. And I feel like Matt got to see a lot of that change. And so I kind of came in with like, just still thinking, God, this is so fucked up. Uh, <laughs> even though it's like, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm made to feel comfortable in, in these neighborhoods at this point. So I don't know. I think, right. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and you, how long had you been living there? Because were you there even living there up until the, to the very end? Or Yeah, uh, I moved into DBA in, in 2007 when we opened the venue. Uh, 
and I and I moved out uh, on November twenty third, twenty fourteen. Well, wow! How many different people did you see like living up in there? Because I've known a couple. I mean, I'm oh, uh, yeah. Brandon Perry is a buddy of mine, so I know he lived there for quite a while. Oh yeah, Brandon was one of our most awesome roommates. Uh, I think I did it. We did like a head count somewhere, and I think I even put it in the credits. But it's I feel like it's around twenty five or thirty people, at you know over over wow. the years, uh, paid rent there. That's incredible. Um, there's two guys that are sort of like in the beginning of the story who are in the early uh, kind of wave of the, the getting the business off the ground or the club off the ground. That's Greg and George uh, yeah. Wilson. Yeah. What? So what? Because those I didn't I, I didn't see them a ton. And, and I and I started going there pretty early, but I wanted to uh, just get a take on like what what their involvement was because they were you know they they obviously had really interesting perspectives on it because it wasn't because they were sort of there at the very beginning too so what what was their role like in the club like for people that may be totally unfamiliar with all the people behind the scenes sure yeah so greg and george wilson are brothers uh who along with uh few other people are in the film joe kelly uh joe jurowitz oliver and uh Mac Moody, they basically were the first kind of the first people who moved into the to this warehouse and built this kind of uh, crazy loft in the back that ended up being called the Dude Ranch. Mm-hmm. And so Greg and George, in particular, uh, you know, were just like awesome dudes from Vermont who you know are into building stuff. And, and uh, George was in a band called Dirty on Purpose. That's right. Uh, Greg was in a band called Coin Under Tongue. Uh, yes. And also with George, and so you know they and they were just kind of a part of the thing. And you know, Greg's a was, at the time was a photographer and has now become a cinematographer, and he even helped with some of the filming of, of our movie. And uh, George, in addition to being in a band, is also like a painter and a sculptor. So I think you know they were like a you know pretty, I think, crucial part of the just kind of the creative energy of the space uh, for especially for getting it all started and everybody, you know, um, having this like kind of core of a loft to, to build off of. Right. Yeah. I remember coin under tongue did some shows with Jeff, the brotherhood when I was Jeff, the brotherhood's agent. And that was really during that period of time is when I was hanging out, um, in the back of the club, uh, often too. So I spent a lot of time back there, usually like after a show, after either like Jeff, the brotherhood or natural child or that, and that like, um, scene was super fun, but it was also it was interesting because it was like a hub for certain groups, and I feel like um, that Nashville, that boom of bands from Nashville, and that scene that sort of came about uh, with Nashville's Dead and like the guy and just like these guys that were all and gals that were all part of that because I booked Heavy Cream as well. Um, I think that that scene might not have had the same kind of kick if it probably wasn't for death by audio too. There was seemed like there was a kinship between those. And that was obviously because of Eden's relationship too, as the booker too. But did you see that too? Cause they, that, that was a place where we, we, it was an, not an obligation, but it was almost an unspoken thing that we would always do a death by audio show on tour. Yeah. I mean, and that's awesome. You know, and it's funny that you even got here through, uh, through, Greg and George because uh, George Wilson is actually kind of responsible for all of that. He, when I guess Dirty on Purpose were at South by Southwest in 2005 or six, and he just happened to see 
Jeff play a show and he loved them and he got their CD and he would play it all the time and everybody just kind of fell in love with it. And they were, Jeff the Brotherhood were the first band that I booked that were like an out of town band. And no I just way. like randomly was like, hey, love your band. Everybody in my warehouse loves your band. Please come play a show. Wow. And then they did, you know. Uh, and I think it just kind of started like that. And then they, I think their kind of increase in touring schedule also kind of lined up with like things like, rolling along with our venue yeah um they grow together simultaneously yeah, totally. as it did with like there was a lot of other bands that had the same trajectory to it yeah for sure and you know but and i think it was even just because of that early kind of really close connection where like we loved their band and they seemed to like us and you know i was in bands that would play with them and they like would hook us up on tour and so it was kind of out of that spirit that you know Anytime those guys are in town, they can crash here. Same goes for, you know, Natural Child and Heavy Cream. But it's funny because just for whatever reason, that kind of community of bands from Nashville were like the only people who ever would stay there. Like, oh, yeah. you know, other some other, you know, it's like with Ty Siegel or, you know, uh, I guess Future Islands guys might have crashed once or twice. But most of the time, it just, you know, it was it's only, just those it was guys. only the, the Nashville bands. Yeah. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, thinking back too, like, cause, uh, when you guys first opened or in that, that 2007 time was when I started working, I was the talent buyer at the knitting factory on Leonard street when it was still in, uh, downtown Manhattan in Tribeca. And it was that I was there until it closed, which was 2009, the cl- club closed and eventually we would like reopen in Williamsburg. And, uh, it was during that slow, you know, closing of that club when it was more and more evident that people weren't really coming to Manhattan anymore to see shows. So, I mean, yes, of course, people go to Manhattan to see shows, but not, there was, people were more and more bands were choosing to play and more and more people were choosing to stay. And it was, it was during this time when Death by Audio really started and Todd P had started to really evolve too as a promoter and like, uh, you know, but it was also like before, it was just an interesting period of time where now the landscape, if you look today in 2017, there's a myriad of venues that did, that did not exist at that point in time. I think in the film, if I think that'll only resonate more as the, as years go by when people are watching the film, like, do you, did I know that was that an, it's obviously not intentional because it was quite literally what happened, but do you see that now that it's been like a year or so of you guys promoting the film and, showing screenings and stuff like that it's resonating with people in that way or do you see that i think so yeah definitely uh in other states as well i mean i think a lot of people in austin are struggling and that there was such a connection from there uh people coming up to us i think one girl came up to me was like bawling because she was just like this is happening to my neighborhood right now and um you know san francisco and oakland and you know Oh, yeah. I mean, even just in the last uh, six months or something, obviously, when, with Ghost Ship was yeah. this, you know, giant tragedy. But I think because of that, it it's it caused all this this ripple through uh, at least what we see in North America, too, with um, the Bell Foundry right in in Baltimore and the spot in Denver as well and then the smell smell, of course which was basically which was had been around a little bit longer but it was the equip it was like the companion to death by audio i feel like in some of the other rooms in new york in los angeles but 
do you see that too now that you've been going out amongst people that like the impact that maybe the club had made outside of New York City like um yeah I mean I don't want to I don't want to like pat ourselves on the back too much but I do I do feel I mean anytime I'm you know in one of these other cities and get to like see friends who are you know who live in Los Angeles or Austin or you know Baltimore or whatever right. you know I mean it's uh it's it it reminds me that like oh we were really a part of a we in addition to being part of a community here in New York we're also part of like a much larger community and you know that's always like really moving for me to just like kind of recognize that like connection and you know goals and aspirations and values and stuff yeah i mean as this is now like a tangible thing and it basically came out when, when was the actual formal release of the of the film because i just saw it you know a month ago basically um well i mean we got into south by southwest so that was sort of like the debut and then oh probably it took us a, that was in march of 2016 2016 yeah um and I think it took us about six or seven months for us to finalize all of our distribution. So, um, yeah, it wasn't in theaters until uh, December. Maybe. Yeah, I think I think our first kind of like uh, theatrical premiere was in New York in December of 2016, and and then the film's just kind of been touring around the country uh, last month and now in January. And this is your, this is both of your first like real full feature, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's my first feature film. Yeah. So what has that process been like just as, as booking it? Like, you know, you obviously have bands and I would love to talk about the, your bands that you're a musician, (laughs) you know, but it's a little, obviously it's a very different playing field to book, uh, screenings for a film, uh, much less produce and complete a film that can be viewed by the public. You know, so, (laughs) How was that, even just from the point of, at what point did you know that this was, that you could finish the actual film and it wouldn't, you know, just be something that would languish, you know, as like a a pet project? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, Amanda was pretty insistent early on that 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 was not possible, that we were going to have to finish this thing and we were going to do everything we we had to 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 accomplish that. Um, I think when I first kind of, realized that like okay we've we've kind of made something was i went to i went to los angeles for about a month to just try and put the film together and make a rough cut with our editor and i was i was i think i was out there for about three weeks and then amanda came for the last couple days to kind of like see what we had been working on you know and and try and help and you know after the first time we showed her the rough cut she was like okay well this is this sucks. This is bad, but really, uh, but like, here's the ways that it can be better, you know. And you know, I mean, and of, and of course, she was right. And and it's like anything else. You kind of need to, well, especially with a documentary. You know, you kind of, you almost have to do your writing and your rewriting and your rewriting in the editing room as opposed to like planning it out beforehand. Sure. Well, I mean, it's all unscripted. Right. Yeah. So I think that's just part of the process where you kind of. You do a pass, and then okay, where what parts don't work? Okay, let's refine it and refine it and refine it. And I think, but I think knowing like that first kind of round of revisions when Amanda came out to the to the edit it was that was probably when we finished that. That was probably when I knew that like okay, this is this is actually going to happen, and it's right. probably going to be at least okay. <laughs> well, what and like as far as getting it 
to a place that how do you even get it to a place of completion where you can submit it was was the end goal to just simply try to submit it to festivals or what was the process for that yeah i think because i think the great thing about the festival circuit is actually puts a deadline on on your movie right and so i'm very used to insane deadlines and that was something that felt kind of familiar to me so we just pushed as hard as possible because we we finished we filmed it and edited all of it in about a year which for a documentary is pretty i mean the whole timeline on that right yeah, and for me i'm definitely the the person that kind of cracks the whip and it's like we got to get this done and you know we have to do this in two weeks we got to do this in another two weeks and um, well your window's closing the yeah. whole time because the club is closing your story like you know if if it's the story of the club closing yeah. you know is your time is super precious i would imagine right? yeah oh well that, especially during the the shooting of it you know and i think when we were filming that was one, another real benefit that we had was uh, one of our producers and one of my roommates, uh, Jeff Kornberg, has kind of a background in uh, video and, you know, interviews and stuff. And he, pretty early into us, like, prepping uh, the film, was like, hey, if you ever want help, uh, you know, I'd love to, to, you know, contribute. And what we ended up kind of doing was having him set up in an in a interview environment in our, like, practice space while separately we've got a crew of three or four people filming whatever band is playing simultaneous to that in another room. And then separate from that, our director of photography, John Yee, is roaming around filming me or Eden or Oliver and just kind of capturing the, the whatever's going on at the time. Simultaneously? Exactly. So at any at one point, we're having essentially like three separate crews filming. Um, and I think that that just came out of necessity because as you're saying, like the window is closing and, you know, we'll like Kip from TV on the radio decides to come to see the OCs. And also, you know, I've got to go solve some problem. And like all of those things are happening at the same time. So we got to like, okay, Kip, do me a favor and just sit in this room and do an interview while we're filming, right. you know, John Dwyer. And then I'm going to go do this other thing. Uh, yeah. Because the, the shows are still going on and no matter what, like there's going to be unexpected stuff with any show, especially at death by audio. I mean, it was like a very particular kind of room. It's right next to where your, your bedroom, right. you know? So yeah, there's already a bunch of pre-existing things happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think in a way that almost was helpful because, you know, if you just kind of got, if you've got the, you know, tornado going and all you need to do is capture it, you know, that's, I think, maybe even a little bit easier than if all of the, if, if I think there's other films where, and in particular, something John, our, our DP, has talked about. It's like, uh, with a documentary, so many people have this thing of like, well, when do I stop filming? Right. You know, and with us, we so knew, we, yeah, we knew exactly when we were going to stop filming. You know, we had the date well in advance. And I think that if, if we didn't have that, it probably would have brought up all kinds of other questions. But we, that was just like eliminated. Like, no, we've got to film everything we can in this short window. Right. Well, the spotlight is on a very particular part of the story. I mean, there there could definitely be, I mean, there everyone's life is a continuous story and and you know and and it even ends in a way where you know Eden who's the you know who I like to talk about a little bit more to explain to people that sure. might be unfamiliar with the club he's the you know the backbone of the book he booked all the shows like for the lion's share of all the shows for the run of the club and in the end uh is him literally packing up 
the club, the the PA of the club, and moving, leaving. He left town, right? Yeah, yeah. He like got he, moved. he got in the truck with with his girlfriend Maggie, and they drove to Florida. Uh, so what? So first, tell people like how did you how did you even meet Eden? Because he's uh, he was a promoter, but he not, wasn't necessarily like a club promoter before he started working there, was he? Uh, so I met Eden. I think Eden. I think I had met Eden in college. And I and Where'd I, you go to college? I went to I went to the New School University, but Eden went to NYU at the same time and oh, okay. we had like a bunch of friends in common, so like, you know, we'd be at the same birthday parties. We have like, the strawberry going. festival and stuff. Uh I don't know if I went to the strawberry festival. It was more he, like he did eventually dress up as a strawberry at the yeah, strawberry festival. That is true. I was there, I saw that. That's true. Um you know, it would be like we meet at like house parties or whatever and like Ironically enough, I specifically remember hanging out with him at this party with uh, my friend uh, Thomas Morton, who has gone on to be a, a personality on Vice. Um, but so anyway, Eden and I knew each other from college, kind of didn't really see each other that much. And then I think I like started, I started really meeting him and hanging out with him because he would work for Todd P. And like I think Eden worked at our very first show that that I put on in the venue with Todd. What was that? Uh, that was this, like, seven-band bill with, like, uh, Thrones and Growing, I think Child Abuse. Nice. And, like, yes, a bunch of bands. Um, oh, yeah. And and so, uh, Eden, yeah, so, and then Eden started, I think, and then probably within, like, the first, like, six months or year of us being open, Eden and his partner Dave started doing this thing called like entertainment for everyone, which was them kind of promoting shows and doing, I think they did like at a lot of bars or a lot of just spaces around, uh, you know, and then he started bringing more and more shows to us. And, and then it it just was just a kind of natural transition where, you know, Jason kind of just was like, I think fed up with New York and didn't want to be doing this stuff anymore. So he wanted to get out. And by that time, Eden was like filling our calendar for, you know, most of the shows interesting um, okay i didn't realize that because I, I don't think i ever worked with jason so i didn't but i know that i remember entertainment for everyone too and that was his thing it's interesting because you after a while you just simply start identifying eden with death by audio he was you know oh, his identity sure. became the room because he booked every single night of the week after a period of time right yeah absolutely and he you know, it's it, Eden's like this just rare, beautiful creature where he has like an unlimited appetite for discovering and enjoying music. And, you know, I've never met anybody quite like that where he he was really happy to just constantly be finding new things and like booking shows and and running shows and doing sound. And, you know, I think it's you know it's just it's just kind of a, a rare thing because you know so often in, with this kind of thing somebody will burn out or lose interest i mean there's even been times where i like would you know i'd have i'd go on tour i'd do other things and like kind of like eden would be taking care of it while i was gone uh and i think you know he just i think for whatever reason that guy is like perfectly cut to do that thing well it takes like a genuine amount of resilience too you have to not take a lot of stuff personally and have a lot of energy and be really enthusiastic and somehow he has this like really amazing uh 
chemistry where he has a good sense of humor. He doesn't get he doesn't get too offended too easily, but he's not like a pushover. I don't know, like it's like yeah. the perfect kind of chemistry for that kind of promoter too. Where and I talked to him recently, and you know, I, you know, I also worked for Panache Booking too for for a few years, and Michelle's an old dear friend of mine, and you know, like looking back at his style of booking too as a booking agent, I know that he didn't really work with a lot of agents. He didn't really work too deep within the industry because I think the industry was maybe afraid to to work with promoters like that because it's it's requires a little, you have to care to a certain level to be able to like bring yourself into into that world and and take a it's take a risk if that's how you consider it. I don't mean I don't mean to go yeah, on yeah. a tangent with that, but no, I know I know what you're saying because you know Eden booked Eden booked Death by Audio the way that like people make mixtapes for their best friends. Like he right. was taking it as as like this like creative endeavor, and I think he and I I think he brought a lot of like integrity and a lot of I don't know just kind of. Um, like a real a sense of authorship to curate curating you know shows but also like to your point you know i i think he and i kind of share a little bit of a like rebellious streak when it comes to the you know preconceived notions of how like the music business runs and there's parts of it that i think he i know he disagrees with and so yeah like he was more interested in like hey i'm going to work with this band directly because i've been working with them before this whole like management and record label right. team showed up and like these are my friends and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because these are my this is my relationship with them and you know I don't know you and right. you know and I think that I think that there if you're I can totally see the flip side of that where if you're the the manager or the the agent or the record label you're like hey man I'm just here trying to help you know and that makes sense I I understand that point of view completely but I think Eden's point was well I've been doing it. This is it's been working. These I know these people, and like I'm gonna pay, I'm gonna hand them a bunch of cash at the end of the night. Right at the end and of the night, you're know, still gonna get paid the same amount of money, if if not more. You know, right. I mean, in that I'd like I would hear that over and over again from people who'd be like having a night off from there. You know, like oh, I'm direct support for some band who's playing at you know Terminal Five, and on my night off, I played Death by Audio, and I made four times as much money as right. I did last night. You know, it's like that's just the way the industry works. Uh, but I think I think Eden was just kind of committed to like sticking to her guns in that way, you know. Yeah, and it makes some, um, you know, obviously there has to be some kind of uh, marriage between uh, a promoter like that and a booking agent, and it makes. And it, I always enjoyed sending shows them too because not only because the artists, especially like you know Jeff the Brotherhood and the Nashville guys, but you know I did a bunch of other people with him too, Pterodactyl, Ardo Lindsay. Um, you know, I'm not going to yeah. regale you with my roster of people I book with him, but it it there was this great sense of compromise in in a, in a healthy way where you would um, everyone sort of worked with each other, and it wasn't one person domineering over another. Typically, that being the agent, and it's you know, and they kind of bring all the money to their side, and you're lucky if you if the promoter makes you know two to four hundred dollars at max or whatever it might be. So. I think that's a very uh, important part of the story in the in the movie too. I mean, and you, did you guys feel like you captured? He's the most visible part of the of the venue by far. Oh so. yeah, I mean, and, and he, he's kind of the heart of the thing, really, because you know I think we all had a lot of our lives wrapped up in that space. But 
no one more so than Eden, if only just because of the sheer time and energy he put into, you know, loving and right curating, you know. uh, setting stuff up, the calendar, the deals. Yeah, totally. I mean, and yeah, uh, I so I don't know. I I'd, I'd like to think that we captured that. I mean, I know I I I'm still talking to Eden all the time, and he was actually just at some of our screenings in Austin and Dallas. Um, you know, and I, I I think he's I think he's pretty happy with the film. I I think it I think it does a fair job of like capturing his you know achievements and without being too you know aggrandizing he also uh oh absolutely i think so too i think it i think honestly it's like it'll take a different shape as time goes on too it's something so immediate now and even though so much has changed since the winter of 2014 i mean just with those venues there i mean there's a giant new venue that's coming down the street from there uh, big skyworks so that's like a whole nother one but oh, right yeah i mean whereas you guys are from coming from this time when like you know music hall williamsburg brooklyn bowl output these places didn't exist yet yeah so it is an interesting uh document of time even even looking back at it that when i watched it i watched it for a second time today i watched it in december when you first gave it to me and it started really reminding me of uh the year punk broke where it has this sort of, you can look back at that film. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you've probably seen this film. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a great documentary of Nirvana and Sonic Youth on tour in Europe and, and other bands, too, that were sort of on and off the tour. And, yeah, it's like has a kind of charming, dated quality of like the early 90s. But, like, but it does capture a very important time that in that moment, it felt like there was nothing else that mattered, really. Those bands were as big as they could possibly be. And um, I think that this is, it does kind of capture this very special and, you know, as all venues do, none of them last forever, especially the, the more, you know, progressive groundbreaking ones, because they don't have an a corporate infrastructure to hold them up. I mean, with all due respect to, uh, you know, and I don't really even need to name drop, I'm sure, especially here in New York City. I mean, anyone knows, I mean, Live Nation and AEG basically own the, the, the majority of the larger venues in, in America. Mm-hmm. A lot of those places are will thrive and last even if they're losing money because there's other money to come and be pulled from other things and so on and so forth. So um, anyway, that's a point that I wanted to try to make. Now, there is, uh, I wanted to ask you about a couple other people that work there, but before I say anything, I know that Eden, as a promoter, must have booked your bands too. And and I've seen, I'm, I've been a fan of your bands too, which I love to just kind of run through because, because um, uh, y- y- you know, I think it's important that for people that see the movie um, to know that yeah, you know you're a musician too. You've been you're a touring and playing musician. I'm not sure. Are you actively playing in the, in anything right now? Uh, no, I haven't really played music since uh, the venue closed. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for and but for the mo- the majority of my time at DBA, I was in I was in bands. Uh, in particular, a band called Sisters, a band called uh, The Immaculates, and a band called Fuckton. Yes, and uh, you know all very very small bands but uh we definitely had a lot of fun and yeah i mean eden booked us for sure i think even eden even maybe maybe booked us some some of our early shows that weren't at dba oh interesting Um, really so he in a way inadvertently may have been your booking agent too (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm sure i mean i'm sure he helped did he book surprise strangers I don't. Well, that band never played a show. Really? Yeah. Dang. Yeah. What was the story with that? Oh band? wait, no, that's not true. We played shows. What am I talking about? 
Because you sorry. had another band too, so, whose no, that name was, that was yeah yeah that we played some shows and he might have actually booked one of those now that I think about it like because we would play it like what's now the Commodore but used to be called the Black Cat I think or Black Betty Black Betty Black yes Betty, which right. for people that live in Brooklyn know that that's was it's a, now currently the Commodore it's across the street from what the Knitting Factory is now but for a long time. Yeah, it was Black Betty, and it had bands there. You know, there's no bands there anymore, but it, that was actually a pretty unique venue in its own right, too. A long since defunct, has lots of mob ties, and there's all types of crazy stories <laughs> oh, with Black Betty. Movie. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there was another band, too, he told me about, but the, the name is so lewd, I, I just I could never say it on the mic. But you had another band before Surprise Strangers. Do you remember that one? Uh, I don't know. High school? Oh my! Like, are, did you, oh, you prepared for this? Interview. Uh, oh yeah, I was in like a really like, a, 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 like a really terrible uh, like improvisational noise band called Rumple Foreskin in high school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did you grow up in New York City? No, no, I grew up in Oakland, California. Oh really? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Amanda, where'd you grow up? Where are you originally from? Um, San Diego. Oh, so you're both from California? Oh, cool. I went to college at Humboldt State in Arcata. Nice. So I lived in Arcata for five years, too. So that's interesting. I didn't know that you're from Oakland. So did like then you must have even had a, a, a kind of a, a, a with Ghost Ship. I mean, there, there's such a connection, both being from there and then being so ingrained into Death by Audio, too. I mean, okay. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it it's kind of uh, like a tragic coincidence. Yeah, that I yeah. made this film that's kind of about one of, you know, the same type of space and then this kind of tragedy happens yeah it's like crazy yeah although with with death by audio there seemed to be a real family vibe i mean there was a staff like you know a loose-knit staff of people at the door at the bar i mean and uh, i would love to talk about some of those people and i didn't know all of them but you know if you see if you ever saw eden there then you will always see gavin there too who's like super cool dude and always um i never got as many drink tickets as michelle cable but uh <laughs> i always wished and hoped that that day may have come Aww. maybe in another venue down the line somewhere yeah. but so did you who, who hired the people that would eventually make up the staff there Was uh, that you yeah i mean i it's it's a it's a mixed bag i think we met i want i think we met gavin also through todd p because i think gavin was working for todd at like our very very early shows uh, same thing with Dory Vandercreek. Yeah, like, Dory, who was who worked the door. Yeah, yeah, she was awesome, super cool. And then I think uh, our other our other kind of main bartender, Tara, uh, oh, right. we met through um, Jason Amos. I think they were like either college or high school friends or something. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny. You kind of just these people kind of gravitate into the you know kind of the orbit of the thing, and some of them stick around and some of them don't. But yeah, I mean, those are those are for me like the three people who we're pretty much there from the beginning all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes the story if you if you're familiar with the room and and even if you're not, if you watch the movie, like you really become uh, attached to the story because there's so many you're so familiar with the music too. But if you would go to it in New York, then you would see the same people working every show and it became like such a comfortable familiar kind of vibe when the door person is usually the same or one or two people the bartender the sound person it's like it has it takes on a whole different kind of life um which i think is pretty special too and also kind of a rare becoming more rare in this 
in this day and age and this regime shift that we're amidst to, it seems like that, that those things are, will become more priceless as they, as they go on. Do you, do you agree with me on that? I do. I mean, I, I agree with you certainly about the impending darkness. Uh, I don't know. I, I think also part of that just kind of comes out of the reality that what we were doing was way more about kind of creating and maintaining a community and I think that it's, if it had just been a job, you know, if it, if it had just kind of right. been like the, the meat grinder of your average thing, I, 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 would, I would be surprised if people would stick around that long. But, you know, I mean, there's so, all, so many relationships and, you know, people, people tell me stories like sometimes of like, oh, no, I met my wife at your venue or I met my girlfriend here or like, mm. you know, I met my best friend at this show and... You know, I think it's that kind of stuff that it not only makes me feel good, but I think that's part of what kind of, if, if you know, I think our values were more focused on creating that kind of an, an environment. And I think that's why people ended up sticking around. Right. So where now that this this campaign is, I, I don't know if the campaign can really come to a close, but I mean, you've worked it for a year now, right? Like, where do you see, is, is, is there going to be, like, how will the film exist for you guys now? Is there like a physical? Will you pursue a physical release of it, or or do you know what the what the long term kind of plan might be? Yeah, so we just had a showing in San Francisco, and I think we both kind of came to the conclusion that it was like, all right, this kind of feels like we're wrapping it up. This last hurrah from a theatrical standpoint, and then we've been lucky enough to sign with a company where um, it'll be available to stream on platforms like iTunes. And, oh, great. Yeah. and uh, On January, starting January 24th. Yeah. Um, and then um, that'll go on for about three or four months, and then Red Bull's done, uh, has a lot of interest in it, so they might take that and put it on all their channels. Oh, so. cool. Yeah, yeah, so it'll be on like cable, like it'll be on like cable TV and stuff through them, and maybe maybe also online somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just something that needs to be seen. I think I'm more interested in knowing that like people will continue to be able to see it too. I mean, yeah, because right now it's just. I mean, obviously, I'll I'll post this conversation and it'll then exist in a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. But like for now, people at this stage, people can really only catch the screenings of it physical right. screening of it right? yeah exactly yeah and then yeah then once it's on once it goes into the onto the like you know video on demand platforms you know I, it'll be on those for you know at least the next 10 years oh cool um and and i think there is going to be a physical release i think there will probably be i think a dvd or a dvd and a blu-ray through uh gravitas who are, who are our distributor uh oh cool great so yeah i mean i i, I hope that and i hope that you know, through all of these things that the film can kind of just have a life where, you know, if there's some, you know, 14-year-old lonely in the middle of nowhere and they can find this movie and maybe that'll inspire them to create whatever their utopian, you know. Oh, no question. (laughs) I think the one thing, one great memory I have and it's sort of a pretty big one of the club is that every nashville oriented show at least that was affiliated with infinity cat there was this one kid that came from new jersey who i'm pretty sure you would recognize i think he's even in the film he's like this sort of short kid i never even knew what how old he was or what his story was i don't think we even ever had a conversation but he i I think he looked at me like i was just like this like weird hanger on guy with the bands but he was this kid he had black hair and glasses i know he came from new jersey and he just i think he came from new brunswick which was also another kind of hub town for that scene 
and he would be at every single show, um, regardless of venue. But he would be. But since most of them happened at Death by Audio, it was just it just I feel like played so well into that story as a whole. So I think even how you're saying that too will resonate hopefully with people that um, are nowhere near physically able to see shows like that. You know, there's a lot of kids like that too. So yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and I you know. Even just for me, like, you know, there's films like uh, Decline of Western Civilization, which was always like a big... All three of them are great. All three of them are great. And and in particular, Decline 1 kind of like... Right. That's the classic one. Yeah. And it kind of captures, uh, like, in in a similar way, I think, to our film, it kind of captures, like, a specific time and a place that's maybe more kind of, like, running counter to, like, the prevailing, you know value system of the time yeah uh, i think that's yeah that's a great analogy yeah and so i mean that's that's been like kind of my like i don't want to sound you know boastful like my hope that maybe you know this film can kind of be for other people what decline was for like me and some of my friends right so where do you guys now that this is coming to a close like are you because you now this is like you have a partnership too as far as this this uh the production company goes like do you already have something else uh like on deck as far as work wise or is this are you, are you was this such an undertaking that you, you don't know where to go <laughs> i'm done uh n- no no yeah we have we have several projects that we're working on and you know i think i think I don't want to, I don't want to speak for Amanda but I think the process of making this film has been like exhausting and stressful and trying and phenomenal and like you know I really just kind of can't wait to do it again. I don't think we're going to make another documentary anytime soon. But. Yeah, I think we're going to move into like narrative stuff, but yeah, to his point, it, it's going through this process has been so educational um that it was it's even more motivating to to try and do it again and actually navigate it in a way that is a little bit more enjoyable instead of like yeah, oh we didn't, we didn't even know we had to do this <laughs> shit now we have like a day to figure it out so um i think it you know it's not just going to be enjoying the process of making the movie but then enjoying the process of trying to get it out there too which is it was pretty big so yeah but um yeah matt's got a handful of scripts that he's been working on over the past like year or two cool um we are you know in part of this process, we've we have people that are interested in you know the projects that our next projects. So we're just really excited to tighten those up and send them their way and see what happens from there. So it's kind of like a bit of a fingers crossed, but also like well, having yeah, a little bit more keep working. Yeah. yeah, so that'll be good. Well, I mean, the film itself, uh, you made what looked like could have been a totally, and I'm sure was a very hectic experience too, and to be have a club and have it close and and be that invested and have the fans be that invested too. The, the film itself looks like it was done quite effortlessly. So like, yeah, I got to commend you guys with that. Yeah. It's a great piece of work and um, I'm happy you guys could take time to come and talk to me about it. Of course. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much. Awesome. Yeah. Appreciate it. Hell yeah. That was my talk with Matt Convoy and Amanda Schultz, the director and producer of Goodnight Brooklyn uh, this great documentary on Death by Audio. I highly suggest you check it out. And you heard it here on the house list with Peter Agassin. Go to goodnightbrooklyn.com. The documentary is available for streaming on Vimeo and iTunes in the U.S. and Canada. And if you're in the New York City area, I wanted to make a point. 
especially if you're listening to this right when I post it or right around on Tuesday, February 7th, there's a special screening at Nighthawk Cinema in Williamsburg, not far from the location of Depth Audio at 7.30. Go to nighthawkcinema.com for tickets. Uh, this would be a great experience. I'm going to try to make it out myself uh, to see the film in a theater amongst friends and fans. If you're in the New York area, uh, you can go to their website as well for any other screenings. So they've been really like working it pretty hard all throughout the last year or two. So I, I was particularly happy to be able to talk to Matt and Amanda as they were entering sort of a new phase in a campaign. Um, and it was interesting because it was also, we did the conversation, we recorded the conversation here in my house in the living room, uh, the day before the women's March, they, they headed down to DC and I, and I participated here in New York and hopefully in the next episode or two, I can share this audio that I recorded at the, um, March. So definitely look out for that. I was thinking back to, I think when I, when I booked Ty Siegel, uh, I was his agent for a brief period of time. I think his first show might've been the death of audio when they did this spot called the maze. They did a maze inside of the venue and you would walk around in a maze while different artists and performers sort of played in corners and little nooks and crannies and stuff, which was uh, very adventurous, uh, in the moment that was like in 2009, I think. Anyway, um, I want to thank you guys for listening to my weekly podcast, The House List. If this was your first time listening, please subscribe on iTunes. It's also available on Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. So anywhere that you can normally pick up podcasts. This is a labor of love. If you did like it, please um, re- you know tweet about it. I'm on I'm on Twitter um, as Houseless Pod. So find me there. If you happen to listen to this on SoundCloud, just hit that repost button for me if you can. So if you have friends that don't necessarily listen to podcasts or wouldn't normally check this out, uh, send it their way, you know, Um, especially because Death by Audio, those are homies of mine. They're friends of mine. They're great. It's a great group of people that were uh, a part of it, Eden and and Oliver. And I even ran into uh, my buddy Jay, who did the sound mixing for the film and he had he's had a bunch of bands um he's in a band right now called roya but he had this really great group that i tried to book here and there when they were around called the immaculates and i saw him i saw him in a in a like a grocery store basically and i was like listen yo i hadn't seen him in a while too and i said hey man i just did this conversation uh with matt and amanda about the documentary for my podcast yeah i got a podcast check it out man you should check out my podcast. Listen, uh, can I use a song of the Immaculates? Because I have this 45. They did a 45 on a tape. And there's one um, on the B-side called Springtime in Your Made-Up World <clears throat> that had a crazy dope drum break at the beginning. So he was generous enough to uh, let me pl- uh, use this. So check this song out. This episode, as all previous is edited and engineered by my man CJ Stewart. I want to thank all the people at Death by Audio. Thanks for all the great shows. Thanks for this wonderful document, this documentary. Uh, To Cyrus from Famous Class, thanks for letting us use the song at the beginning. And to all the artists uh, that played, especially the ones that I worked with, um, 
what great memories we have of that time, definitely check out the film, goodnightbrooklyn.com. And I will catch you guys on the next one. Bye now. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. 
In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.